nowadays, because I have a little bit more confidence in like knowing how to not just say no, but also have a reason for for saying no. I, I, I can say no to ideas now. And I think in the early days, I didn't say no to enough ideas. I think even probably when I first became an editor and people would pitch me, I said, I probably said yes a little bit too much to ideas that I knew weren't great. And I'm a lot, I think I'm a little bit more discerning now. With, with age. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. I want to personally thank you for tuning in and supporting our show. If you haven't yet, hit that follow or subscribe button. I encourage you, don't keep this to yourself. Share these inspiring stories with your friends, invite them to subscribe, and connect with us on social media. So today's guest is Christopher Zara. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Sure. Um, I am a journalist with Fast Company Magazine, a business publication, and I recently wrote a book called Uneducated, which is all about uh, my working in journalism without a college degree, and actually technically without a high school diploma as far as as far as high school goes i was um ejected in 11th grade and and ended up getting a ged um i had some behavioral issues in in high school and 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 ended up getting into some trouble back in those days um but my path to uh journalism was was really unusual and the reason i wrote the book about it is because i had become aware of being uh, sort of an anomaly, I guess, in journalism. It's it's typically an industry nowadays where you have to not only have a college degree, but it's usually, you know, usually have to have a, a degree from a pretty good school um, to get your foot in the door. And it's it's kind of progressed and evolved that way over, you know, a number of decades. It, it, it didn't used to be the case that journalism was only a, a pursuit for educated people. It used to be a very working class profession, actually. And so I became aware of some of this stuff only by sort of accident, like once I started to work in the business and realized that I was unusual and, and just, you know, by contrast to my to my colleague, you know, being so highly educated. And so I thought there was opportunity for a perspective that I could share on as someone in this kind of a white collar business without a college. Yeah. And, you know, that's very interesting because I think it kind of takes away from the essence of journalism because, OK, cool. You know, people went to school and, you know, they know that stuff. But at the end yeah. of the day, journalism is discovery and telling stories. And if you yeah. only limit storytelling from the perspective of people who have had a certain path, Mm -hmm. you're taking away the essence of journalism because at the end of the day, if someone can tell a story, if someone has a passion and someone is willing to put in the work, why would you not listen to their story? Why would you not have that perspective? Because we need all different sorts of perspective to kind of get to the truth, right? Because there are always many sides to the story. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly it. And that's, that's often what I say. It's, it's, you know, it's for a lot of white collar office jobs. It's, it's an issue, but for journalism, especially because it is about telling stories. Um, and if you limit who gets to do that, you really do get limit the perspective of who's telling us about the world. That yeah. really means there should be a range of perspectives in journalism. That, that includes people who went to J school and people who went to Columbia and yeah. people who, who went to Northwestern. It also should include people who didn't have those paths. So I think you hit it exactly of, of why I it's why it's really especially crucial in a, in a profession like like journalism. And I think it's even more crucial today than before because journalism is going through changes, right? Just because yeah. of how the internet works and all that, you know, just how they have to make their money and a lot of local newspapers are getting 
you know, swallowed up or they're going out of business. And it's like, you want those stories and you want to keep the essence of journalism alive. And so I think it's even with having it being a much harder profession than it was before, you don't want to limit it to just a certain type of group. Totally. It's a tough business and it's a constantly, it's always changing. I mean, I've been in journalism for 20 years and I I don't, I'm too young to remember a time when it wasn't being disrupted by something. Yeah. You know, the internet was sort of in its early days when I started, um, but it was already there and people could see the writing on the walls that yeah. like the old days of the newspaper business were going to change dramatically. And of course they did. So like, yeah, you're right. It's like, it's the kind of thing where you're studying it in school now, but what are you going to be doing in five years? We don't even really know. Yeah. And then also, you know, from the other perspective is the medium has been changed so much so that someone who went to and graduated in the 90s and 2000s is going to go through so many rapid changes that your degree or your institution cannot prepare you for. You have to like yeah. continuously learn and keep yourself updated. And now what I've been seeing is a lot of journalism is moving independent, right? Where people, it's easier than ever to broadcast yourself. Yeah. And then you're getting like people who are their own journalists who are Either they're going on Reddit and, you know, they're just known as this is a person that does a lot of research in this area or they have a podcast or they have a YouTube channel. So it's it's really transforming. And I don't think like, you know, you're going to learn how to start a, a good YouTube channel. But it's also interesting in that a lot of podcasts that do well are those deep historical podcasts that are journalistic pieces that people spend hours and hours scripting totally and people will find they'll they'll find an audience it's not it's often not going to be a huge audience it's not going to be the kind of audience that the new york times is going to get but there's an audience out there for just about everything especially when you're talking about niche content that is like really focused on a particular area Um, and i think that's partially why expertise matter at the high level but they also matter at the low level and and that often those kind of expertise are are you know acquired through living and not necessarily through school yeah so if you could create a blueprint of your success to pass on to someone without a college degree how would it look like you know what would they do what should they not do in the field of journalism i would say like in my case i came to it pretty late so i started uh, really writing professionally and and really doing full-time journalism at the age of 35 which is relatively late i did it through an internship uh, an unpaid internship that when i first got to new york city my first week here the village voice still existed at that time this was 2005 and I saw an ad for for unpaid interns at this uh, entertainment newspaper called Show Business Weekly. I called up and I <laughs> I sent my resume in and I and I got in um, to do the unpaid work. And that was my entree into the business. I got really lucky in the sense that that was a small newspaper, and one of the editors left. The, the publisher happened to like me, so he gave me a job as an editor. And it was such a small paper that I learned the ins and outs of journalism pretty good at this little you know this little ragtag newspaper that covered. Um, theater and and entertainment. That's not probably going to be the typical path. What I would say, if you want to start doing journalism and you don't have the the credentials or the college degree, um, do freelance. Uh, Mm. Freelance is the best way in. And that's the way you really get your, your first clips. You and editors at publications, online, magazines, wherever, they always need good writers to cover stories. Um, so pitch things and, and freelance. That's what I always tell people when they're starting out is to do freelance and to pitch, like actively pitch real, like specific ideas. Don't just write in and say, hey, I'm a writer and I want to work for you. Write, give, give specific ideas because that's what editors need. They need ideas. Yeah. And 
you know, it's interesting in for any career, I always say, find a way to build a portfolio. So in journalism, build a portfolio of like local pieces, local things yeah. that you've done and show that. If you want to be a programmer, show little things that you've built. If you want to be a photographer, show a portfolio of the headshots and the events you shot. doesn't matter what you want to do. Build that portfolio because it shows that first it it doesn't have to be perfect because at the end of the day, they're not expecting you to be this Pulitzer Prize winning journalist yet. They want right. to see that passion. And at the end of the day, they're going to mold you. But they want to see that someone has taken the steps to at least put themselves forward and go forward. So now let's kind of talk about the salary ranges. What's like realistic at the entry level and what can people work their way up to? Yeah. Okay. So that is a, it's a pretty big range. I would say nowadays, if you're writing for an online publication and you can get, um, you, let's say 50 cents to a dollar a word, that's pretty good um, yeah. for online. But that means like, say you're putting out a 300 word story that requires a little bit of reporting and you get paid 300 bucks for it. I'd say that's probably in the range of decent. Um, you're talking about freelance. Um, if you do a longer piece, you might get a thousand dollars. You might get two thousand. If you have a name and you're and you're uh, and a lot of experience, you probably get a little bit more than that. When you start talking about full time, um, I think a lot of it depends on where you live. Probably nowadays in New York, we now have to post salary ranges for job ads. So it's become really kind of interesting. If you go onto LinkedIn, you can see the ranges for uh, for an entry level um, editor job you know I would I would probably venture to guess it's it starts anywhere from you know 60 70k at the lower range to to 100 um, 150 at the higher range if you're you know an editor with a lot of experience okay no that's and it's good to know and I just I do know that sometimes a lot of the freelance gigs, as you start building a name, they can pay more per hour. However, they don't necessarily have the same benefits and health insurance and all the other things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's like with freelance, like some people want to do it a lot for a long time because they actually like the flexibility. Um, They, some people like to do lots of different things at once. For other people, it can be frustrating when you're doing freelance and doing it for a long time and you're trying to get that staff position somewhere and it's just not, you're not getting the offers. Like I, I, I've been there, like I've, I've done freelance, so I know what that's like too. And like for, for me personally, like I like being where I am. I like having a staff job. I've, I've met writers who just don't want that, you know, so it really, it really depends on, on the writer. Hey, are you frustrated with your job search? Are you sending out resume after resume with no callbacks? If so, I have some good news. After three years of helping over 400 people land jobs at places like Meta, HubSpot, Google, Twitter, Amazon, Tesla, Disney, Sony, just to name a few, I created a course. In the Get Your Dream Career course, you'll discover best practices for creating a resume that stands out and you'll also learn how to optimize your job search. It covers every aspect of the job including resumes, application strategy, networking, LinkedIn profile optimization, interview guidance, and salary negotiation. You will also get a behind-the-scenes view of how recruiters use LinkedIn to find candidates. And of course, you'll get resume and cover letter templates. Get one step closer to your dream job. Sign up at the link in the notes below. So let's go back. What's your backstory? Uh, <laughs> what do you want to be in high school? So now I got to go all the way back to the yeah. 1980s. Let's see. Um, so I went to high school in Trenton, New Jersey. It was a very working class, pretty, you know, almost lower middle class um, play, place. People, this is going to sound weird, but people didn't have huge expectations. They didn't have a lot of aspirations. It was sort of a different time period. You know, people, 
leave, end up working in construction or, you know, whatever, work for their parents' business or something like that. There weren't, there weren't a lot of um, expectations. I would say um, early on, I probably wanted to be in, in the music world. I played in punk bands and things like that. That was probably the first creative thing that I did. What happened to me in high school was I, I had, the, you know, some behavioral issues, like I mentioned, and um, I got basically the teachers kind of got fed up with me and they put me in special with this special education system where you're considered emotionally disturbed and they put you in a special school in a special setting for other people who are emotionally disturbed. And so suddenly you're in this school with like all the other kids who got kicked out of school so I didn't last there and I got, I ended up getting, you know, basically kicked out of high school. And so that was the end. Um, and I really wandered around with a little direction for a long time after that. I would say almost a decade or so where I was working in retail and doing jobs I didn't really like. Um, I'd say I didn't really discover I wanted to be a writer professionally until a little bit later on. The reason I knew I, I, I could do it, this is actually speaks very, you know, this, this speaks well of the teaching profession is I, I had really, you know, teachers who were encouraging, despite the fact that I didn't go very far in school. There were a couple of good teachers who, who pulled me aside and would tell me that I could write and basically encourage me. So, and that went a long way. I'd say throughout my life, I've, I've thought back on those moments where teachers actually gave me the encouragement I needed. You know what? And same thing, like I've had those teachers who are just supportive and you really remember them for the rest of your life. You're like, wow, yeah. like that was a pivotal moment. And this person supported me and saw something in me when maybe other people did not. So what kind of jobs did you hold? And what were, what was like the first job you had after high school? Well, let's see. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I got into some ish, some problems with, uh, with drugs right after high school. Um, when this is in New Jersey. So I had to basically yeah. leave the state of New Jersey at that time, this is like now we're getting into, into like the early 90s. There were a lot of open air drug markets in like New York City and, and Philadelphia and the big cities in this area. It was really difficult for me to stay in the area because of because of that. So I left to basically clean myself up. I went down to Florida and down there is where I really started to do a lot of the retail stuff. I worked in shopping malls. Um, I did about three years tour of duty at uh, Haagen-Dazs ice cream okay. stand at, at a shopping mall. I'm, and you know, I'm almost 30 years old now. I'm working at, you know, as an yeah. ice cream scooper. Um, the ice cream was nice. It, yeah. it tasted, it tasted good. Yeah. Uh, so I did a lot of that kind of stuff. I did picture framing, you know, just anything I could do to, to survive. And I did, I did that for a long time, you know, at least, at least, you know, almost a decade, like I said. So you had all these different jobs, right? When did you sort of make a decision and you're like, all right, I want to do more and these jobs are not enough, right? They're not giving me direction and they're not giving me the opportunity that I want in life. Yeah, so now I would say I, I ended up moving out to Seattle for a, a few years, and I'm, I'm probably now about 32 years old, still doing. I think at that time I was working at a picture frame shop, uh, st still basically not really enjoying what I was doing. And now looking at when you're 32, you're like, oh, you know, crap, you know, I can actually see 40 now. It's like it's only eight years away. I mean, I had an idea. I, I, I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what, like, how do I get from picture frame shop to professional writer? 
Um, I found this book when I was in, in, in a bookstore that said like how to write magazine articles and make money doing it. And I was like, okay, I looked look through this book and it basically, I don't know, it, something fell into place there. It said pitch, come up with an idea, pitch a magazine editor and see, and, and see what happens. So I did that and I got an assignment on my, my first pitch basically. So um, I saw that as like a sign that I should continue to do it. And that I built a few freelance clips up that way. And then I just decided, you know, I'm going to come to New York and see, see if I can do it full time. And that's when I did the internship. So there were some, like some lucky things that happened. Uh, there was also a lot of determination. You know, when you do freelance, a lot of people say no. And for a while I just made it, I was going to make it my full-time job. I sat behind my desk and I said, I'm going to pitch all these different magazines. Most of them say no, a couple of them say yes. Um, and, and that's how it works. Wow. So you had this unpaid internship. Uh, how did you manage the unpaid internship? Because I know one of the issues with unpaid internships is like, all yeah. right, you still got to survive. Yeah, it's funny. Like when I did the, this unpaid internship, 2005, it wasn't quite, it didn't, the issue didn't quite come to the fore yet that a lot of these internships were not only exploitative, but ba- basically illegal. Like they, they were, the yeah. employers are asking you to, to work, um, you know, sometimes three, four or five days a week and yeah. not pay you. I think that probably does still exist. Um, you know, I think it exists less now because employers, some employers got sued over that. Interestingly, when I became a full-time journalist and, and started to write for this place called International Business Times a little bit later on, I actually covered that quite heavily. I, I, I you know, I wrote about the, the changing unpaid internship, you know, world and how like these employers were getting sued. Um, but when I did it, nobody, I didn't question it. And I don't think a lot of people questioned it. So I had to work part-time in a frame shop in New York on the Upper West Side while I was also doing the unpaid internship. Yeah, so that's okay. So you you had to like manage that. Now, you finished the internship, what came next? Well, that was that was where the luck came in. I had uh I'm at this paper called Show Business Weekly and one of them it was a small paper, so one of the editors who did most of the work actually left because I was there. The publisher was like, "Look, you know, would you want to run my newspaper basically?" Yeah. And so I was like, yeah, I didn't really know what I was getting into. It was really tough because this was a newspaper that was basically geared toward like helping actors break in the show business. Um, It was huge in its early days, but by 2005, the internet was already there and had already disrupted this business model. So it was kind of a dying newspaper by the time I got there. And I just did what I could to try to make it survive. And I worked there for like five years but it, it was it was a downward spiral in terms of a, being a viable business. But for me, it it taught me a lot about journalism and got me my future jobs too. I mean, because now now once once I was there for five years, people saw that I could you know manage a, a staff and and run a newspaper and manage an editorial department and all this different stuff. So it was really a, a little bit of luck in my case. What were the things you learned? Because now you're running a newspaper and a lot of people think it's, hey, you just interview people and write. But there's a lot of other things that goes into journalism to make sure that the story gets published. Yeah. And and this was a weekly newspaper. So it would be and it's it was basically my job to make sure it got published every week. And there were times when, you know, I don't know, say like you're uploading all the PDFs to the printer and there's like, I don't know, there's one of the the ads isn't loading or something. Yeah. And then, now you're there till midnight trying to figure out like, why isn't this ad loading? And if we don't get it to fix it, like there's going to yeah. be no paper tomorrow for, for the actors. 
Um, so little stuff like that would happen. People complaining because they're not getting their newspaper or the, the newsstands, they're, on, they're not on the proper newsstands that they're, that they're supposed to be. And then I had a boss who liked to yell and scream a lot. So he would constantly, I could never focus on one thing yeah. <laughs> because he was always like, why haven't you done this? And I said, because you just told me to do this. And he's like, well, what about this other thing? And so it's like, and I was, I was only one person. So it was like, there was a lot of yelling and screaming in that office. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess every time I've seen a newsroom in the movies or in a cartoon, there's always yelling. So I guess they, they got that part yeah. right. This was a very smaller, smaller version of that, but it was pretty much, yeah. What really drove me nuts was when he would yell at me, like, I'm, I'm supposed to be managing, like, you know, I had interns to manage yeah. and other staffers, and he would, like, just yell at me in front of them, like, undermine, yeah. my, my, you know, my leadership. And I had one time I had to pull him aside. I was like, look, you know, yell at me all you want when we're alone, but, like, this is, like, undermining my, you're undermining yeah. my ability to manage these people. And it was like, he actually understood that and, and kind of cooled, okay. cooled off for a while. But So now you learned how to manage interns, you learned a lot about deadlines. What was something that you learned that you're like, wow, I had no idea that this was so important to the career of journalism? I think, you know, later on when I started to write, my next job after that was called International Business Times. And it was, um, it was this really fast growing um, online news startup. Okay. Um, this is when I switched over into online journalism. And uh, what I learned there, I think, was probably the most crucial in terms of like do what I'm doing now, because I really learned how um, Google and these online platforms control the flow of information. Even to this day, Google is now in court for, you know, this antitrust lawsuit because of, well, because it's, it's accused of basically favoring its own products. Um, it, this was obvious to people who knew about the internet, but not to me as someone who was new to online journalism. It, what I learned was the, you know, the importance of SEO and the importance of the timing in a story carving out the, the angle to your story. If you're writing about the same thing that 50,000 other publications are writing about, you really got to try to stand out. That's still true today. I think Google maybe has a little bit less power because there's other, there's a lot of other platforms that exist. Yeah. There's TikTok. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. as, you, as you mentioned, there's, you know, people doing their own YouTubes. Substack is, is pretty big right now. So there's lots of different, there's, there are lots of different platforms, but, um, but Google is still the main search engine and it still drives the conversation in a, in a dominant way. Um, I learned that about 10 years ago when I first went there and, um, it's been, it's been a critical, it was a critical turning point for me in terms of learning how online media works. Yeah. So now you went to the next job. How was that? How was the transition from running this newspaper to this different publication? It was a real wake up call. Not, not only was it going from print to online, but it was, it was going from a small operation to a really bigger, fast growing one. Uh, IBT Media, when I got there, was really growing insanely rapidly. They bought Newsweek while I was there. Newsweek's a mainstream publication. They had all this attention. Uh, not all of it good. <laughs> yeah. It was like apparently this cult, you know, running this religious cult running things yeah. behind the scenes that I didn't know about at the yeah, time. Oh, wow. I, like, I, I, I knew the rumors, but I didn't yeah. know that turned out to be true. <laughs> um, and it was like, it was bigger in terms of a workplace. I really had to learn workplace dynamics in a new way because you learn how to interact with different teams. Um, you learn to interact with a bigger group of, of people. You learn workplace politics, not to step on people's to toes, the things like that. So it was, for me, it was, it was hugely, uh, different when I got that, 
that job and it ended up now I was like really a professional. I was working alongside people who had gone to Columbia J school, um, people one Princeton real journalists. And that was, uh, that was the real, uh, to me, that felt like I, I had arrived. What were some things you learned in this new environment? So you learned how to manage a bigger workforce. What are some other key yeah. skills that you picked up? I think probably the main things that I learned was, um, stuff about my beat. you know, I cover at fast company. Now we cover business tech, um, media, you know, a lot of, a lot of the moving parts of business journalism. I learned at, at international business times. I learned about stock markets. I learned about how finance works. Like these were things as someone from with my background, no one taught me that, that stuff. Like my parents never pulled me aside and said, taught me how, the, how the stock market works. Like I had to learn all that stuff by covering it in a journalist setting. So all that stuff's been valuable. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I love covering business. Um, but because of my background, I, I never really got to be exposed to it, like as a young person. And uh, I sort of envy people who get get that education, yeah. like, like early on. It really helps when people teach it to you, but I'm glad you did learn it. So how long were you there? And what came next? Uh, so I was at I was at IBT for about, let's see, four years. And interestingly, just in the way that the, the print publication kind of folded while, you know, while I was at Show Business Weekly, the online media also collapsed. What happened in, this was in like mid, I think like 2016, there was just a glut of these publications. Like there were, you know, BuzzFeed and Business Insider, um, Huffington Post. A lot of these places still exist, um, but they're considerably smaller than they were at that time. There was this huge race to create scale in online media. And what people thought that meant at that time was to just be as big as you could, get as much traffic as you could, and the online, the ad revenue is going to follow. But what it's really difficult to make money with online ads. Um, the, the It's diminishing returns in a lot of ways. So if your business is too reliant on digital advertising, it's really tough to survive. And so what happened with, with IBT was at a certain point, we were just hiring like crazy, hiring like crazy. And then all of a sudden they just put the brakes on. And all of a sudden they're like, they said, you, you can't expense things. You can't, you're not going on this to this conference. That's how it started. And then it was like, oh, now we're going to have a huge round of layoffs. And it's like, oh, wow, this is, was really humbling. And then it's like, oh, here's the second round of layoffs. I'm like, wow, what, what the hell's going on here? All of a sudden they're like laying everybody off. Um, so I got, I got swept up in one of those big layoff rounds in 2016 and then I, again, like some like lucky, you know, break happened where a colleague of mine was running this news section at Fast Company and needed, they needed help. And so they, they brought me on. Now it's a different type of company. How was it transitioning to this? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I had to learn at Fast Company was the, there was, there's a certain way that we cover business and the way, and we look at business through a lens of innovation. Um, there was a lot of specifics about startup culture and about venture capital and funding rounds and the types of companies that Fast Company covers are, were a little bit different. And what I really like about Fast Company is, sort of what I just mentioned before, like it's not so heavily reliant on advertising. Of course we have advertising, but we also have the fe- our huge events business, our innovation festival. Um, we have, you know, d- different recognition programs that people, that companies apply to and stuff like that. So there's lots of different elements to the business. And it's, so it's, it, it feels a lot more stable in a, in a lot of different ways. 
And that goes a long way with me because journalism, as I mentioned before, is a really tough business. Not only do I work in it, but I've covered media for many years. So I just, I just know how it goes. Like you think you're stable and then one day, you know, you're getting laid off. Like that's just how it is. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's a very tough business. So now looking back at your career, what were some of the things that you feel you did right? And what were some of the things that you were like, Hey, I that was a big mistake. Hmm. Okay. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that the thing I did right, the biggest thing was come to New York, uh, because I knew I wanted to be where things happened and where media is sort of concentrated now. This is not to say you can't be a journalist elsewhere. You obviously can and, and people should be, I think, you know, but in my case, at that point in my life, I really wanted to be in a city where it was concentrated, um, where the business was. And so coming to New York, I, I think was, was probably the best thing I ever did. I also just happened to love it here. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, look, it's I, a beautiful I, city. Yeah. I grew up close enough to it where I could come as a teenager and, and be exposed to it. And I could never forget it. Like I became, became kind of obsessed with it. So that was probably the, the, the biggest thing I did in terms of like mistakes that I've made. I've made a lot of I, I made a lot of mistakes um, at at Show Business Weekly. I think partially because I didn't really know anything about the business. I didn't push back hard enough when my boss wanted to do wanted me to to do certain things. For example, he wanted me at one point to just take create a Google map of every um, of, of every uh, yeah, newsstand that that covered that um, had our oh, newspaper man. on it. And this was like hours and hours of work. And it was like, in his mind, we were like create, you know, creating this database that was going to yeah. be, you know, help, help other newspapers. And I was like, I knew no one was going to want this. No one yeah. needs this database. It, it's already a dying model. And I just did it anyway, because I was like, the boss wants me to do it. I'm going to do it. I don't want to get fired. There were a lot of little things like that, where he just had these huge, big projects and I didn't push back hard enough. I think that nowadays, because I have a little bit more confidence in like knowing how to not just say no, but also have a reason for for saying no, I, I can say no to ideas now. And I think in the early days, I didn't say no to enough ideas. I think even probably when I first became an editor and people would pitch me, I said, I probably said yes, a little bit too much to ideas that I knew weren't great. And I'm a lot, I think I'm a little bit more discerning now. With, with age. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, it's one of the things we just learned, like the power of saying no. It's just you grow yeah. up and you're thinking like, hey, I, I can't say no. Like, I'm scared of losing my job. I'm scared of ruining the relationship. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's about balancing the yeses and nos. Totally. And I think, I really do think that gets back to the, the whole point about education. And when you, when you work in, in a business like journalism, where everyone's got a college degree and you don't, you feel a little bit like you shouldn't be there. I feel like a, like, and I know that this is not how I should feel, but it's, it just happens because of the power of education as an entity in our society. It, I, I constantly would feel like I didn't belong or that people would find out, you know, quote unquote, it's not that I ever lied, but like people don't know unless you ask, they ask you sometimes. So I would just, I feel like I was going to get discovered as a fraud and I felt like at any time someone was going to tap me on the shoulder and said, sorry, you're not actually not qualified to be here and you have to leave. <laughs> um, and so I've, for that reason, I always felt like I kind of, kind of felt like I had to work harder and I, and I did feel like I couldn't say no to stuff. Now, looking back at your career, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment? I would say probably the fact that I've been, that I've managed to stay in it. 
Um, and I've really like, I know a lot of people who come into the business, realize it's tough and leave because they don't, they want to do something else with their lives because journalism is, you know, you really do have to work for a living. It's hard. Like, um, I, I think being able to look back and say like, this is what I do. And this is what I am to some extent in a city like New York. Like to me, that's probably the biggest accomplishment. Um, when I used to dream about living here um, as a kid and as a teenager, it felt like a long way away, even though like, again, you know, Trenton, New Jersey is only an hour away by train. It just felt like such a long way. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest the thing I'm most proud of in terms of career. No, that's amazing. So what would you say, looking back, was the hardest period that you went through? Um, probably those those first couple of years at at the, the newspaper um and part of part of that was again the, the boss who liked to yell and scream he was this old school new yorker type guy and uh really came from this era of just not really respecting boundaries not understanding workplace sensitivities and uh and i just i, I was never i was not used to anyone talking to me the way he did in a professional setting um if i had not been working for him and it was not and i my job wasn't on the line i would have you know i would have told him to f off a long time ago because that's that's how we talk in new jersey right? yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't take we don't take that so like for me it was like you know i wasn't used to having to take that kind of stuff and i realized i could say f off and leave but then yeah. then i lose so like i i just took it i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna do things differently now i'm gonna take it and keep taking it until i i'm able to use this to find something better it's tough because you do learn a lot but it sucks the way you have to learn those things yeah. when you're going through it now were there times that the lack of a college degree held you back after you got experience? Yeah, there were. There was actually, um, I, I wrote about this in the New York Times where I was in the business for about 10 years when I got laid off at, in 2016. And I really thought the opportunities would come pretty easily because I figured, you know, 10 years of experience, you know, real newsroom experience in New York City. I figured I should at least get interviews. What I discovered was not having the college degree was a real um, barrier in terms of getting my resume through the automated filters that exist now that a lot yeah. of companies set up. And this is a this is the issue that I wrote about in the New York Times, and it's an issue that a lot of people are talking about now. A Harvard Business School did a study about how these filters really keep qualified candidates from even be, being seen because their resumes just don't get through. And I hope it's changing. I venture to guess that it probably hasn't changed that much. Um, no. I'm- I do resumes and unfortunately, I will say that if you put effort into the resume and you put numbers, the education matters less. But the thing is, there's so much conflicting advice on how to write a resume that you don't know. And the only reason I've known and learned is through trial and error. And it's like, I went to like an Ivy League, I went to Columbia and the resume template I got from them still is not good enough for these online systems. So think about this, that it's just this weird rules. It's like some of those things you don't know until you've actually worked with some of these systems. And then you're like, oh, that's why things are that way. So it's it's tough. I have seen some companies change things. And I think LinkedIn and social media has been giving visibility to people through other means. There is a discussion happening now, at least. And I think what they call skills-based hiring, which is uh, essentially hiring people based on skills and and focusing a little bit less on their educational background. I don't know that it's going to solve all of our problems because it's, there's still a bias with 
the human the human element right so yeah. there's still that like the, the education is a huge branding has huge branding power if people see harvard on someone's uh, resume that's just going to stick out because everyone knows what Harvard is and everyone yeah. knows it's really hard to get into Harvard and it really matters if someone went to Harvard. So like it's, I think that that, that branding element is going to, is tough to undo. Yeah. I do think, again, it's one of those things that change takes time, right? There were certain systems in place and things were done a certain way and you can't just change things yeah. overnight, right? Because what happens is a lot of times the people who went to these schools end up getting big jobs and they set the culture and the tone of the organization. So they're like, hey, we want someone from Columbia J School because we want someone from Princeton. And we're not going to look at someone because people who are good go there. But again, it's one of those things that cause bias. And people are starting to realize that it's causing issues and you're just not serving the purpose that you're originally supposed to serve. But it will take some time. And thankfully, we have people like you who are sharing the stories, who are writing books (laughs) on it, who are getting the voice out there. And, you know, I'm glad that companies have taken their, you know, I I don't think they took a chance on you. You showed that you had the experience, but I'm glad that companies are looking at people like you and realizing like, hey, someone like Christopher brings so much value. Yeah, I mean, that that is really why I wrote the book. I don't think Uneducated is an anti-college book, yeah. actually. It's it's actually not, it's really a book about education. And I wanted to write about education from the perspective of someone who doesn't have the, the traditional education. And, that, and that's really where I hope the book lives in the marketplace is like, if, if you want a, three books about college this year, read one from the guy who didn't graduate. And, and I'll, you know. <laughs> and you know what? A lot of people will assume I'm anti-college. And I'm just more about that you need to look at education through a holistic lens and yeah. realize that universities aren't the only source of education, especially now, because there was a time where, okay, if you want to learn something, you kind of had to go to a university because all the resources were there. Yeah. But now with the advent and of the internet and the accessibility of the internet were that someone in a remote village in Bangladesh can learn and read a book on their like used iPhone 6, it really changes things. And I think people need to really focus on the fact that learning can come from anywhere. Different people are going to learn different ways. And then, you know, for someone like you, it's just the fact is you were dealt teachers who did not know how to handle you, who are not equipped to assist you. And that's what led you to your path. Had you gone to maybe a different school or had a different teacher, maybe you wouldn't have those problems, right? So there's so many factors that surround why someone doesn't go to college that you can't really judge them. And at the end of the day, it's like if someone's making an effort, you know, and they're doing the right things and they're building a portfolio, that person does deserve a shot to be looked at. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, that's that that really should be the message. And I think there should be room for both in, in the world that we live in. And I think that We've just been skewed a little too much in the in the, the direction of college as a necessity, and I, I think if it skews a little bit back in the other direction, I think that's I think that's a good thing, and I and I hope that that happens. And I think slowly it's going to happen, especially with because these schools are just very outrageous. Because if you want to go to be a journalism, and unless you have a family that's bankrolling you, yeah, it's just the cost not of it is it's just astronomical. <laughs> you're just not going to be you can't, you know, living in New York is astronomical. Having student loans on top of that, it's just, it's just not feasible. Now, I want to ask you something. This is going to be very different. If you saw your 16 to 18 year old self walking across the street today, what would you tell him? I don't want to disrupt the timeline. So yeah. <laughs> I say as little as possible. Okay. But for the, for the sake of the exercise, yeah, I think I probably would really want to say, your attitude of telling people to F off and all this stuff, that's, that actually is not the way to win in this world. And it feels good. 
but it doesn't get you anywhere. You actually lose. Um, I think that's probably what I would say because that kid had a really hard head and he had, yeah. he had to learn that the hard way. Yeah. No, I mean, like, stay away from drugs. Stay away from yeah. drugs. <laughs> okay, that's, that's good advice. <laughs> that's good. I would say. Yeah. So now you have a great career, right? You have a book. What are your future goals? Well, I, I hope to, to share this message more. You know, I, I hope that I hope that I can spark this conversation, and if people are having it. It's not it's not just you and me having it. Obviously, you're, you have the podcast, but I, I hope that this year is really what what I want to focus on. I want more people to understand the choices we make as people in hiring positions, the choices that they make when they when they acquire new talent. And the biases that they have, and to really look holistically, as you as you just said, like at the person, at the big, the bigger picture. And I hope to continue to spark that conversation. That's really a short term goal. No, I love it. Now let's dive a few minutes into the book. Like, who is the book for? What does it cover? What value would someone get from the book? Yeah, so it's a memoir. So it's really basically, I mean, it's a, my own experience. I initially thought I would try to do something a little bit more journalistic yeah. and with a lot of data, um, but it felt really dry. And I wanted to just say, I'm just going to, here's my experience. My experience is, is just mine. It's not going to, a lot of people are going to have a different experience, obviously. But what I will say is since it, since it came out, I do, I get messages now, like, you know, all the time from strangers who say they can really relate to, Basically, that feeling I was saying before about feeling like you're not good enough because of your education, and that is a very relatable feeling. Even if education is not the thing that makes you feel that way, it could be something else. It's still a feeling that everyone, especially at work, people um, know what it feels like to have this sort of imposter syndrome, like you don't belong there. And so I've had a lot of people tell me that that feels like the really relatable message of the book. And I think that was partially the intention. Like I wanted to feel universal in that sense. So that's that's the, broadly speaking, that's that's the message. It's um, there's the specifics of it were a lot of the stuff we just talked about. How you're trying to make your way in this business in journalism, which is just constantly changing, and it always feels like the ground is shifting, and you always kind of have to feel like what the, you got to know what the next thing is going to be because this current business model we have isn't isn't working. Those are the day-to-day specifics that are in it, but the broadly speaking, the theme is trying to find yourself in a world where you, you know, you're being told, you know, you constantly feel like you don't belong. Check out the copy of the book. I'm gonna buy a copy. Hopefully, I can get an autograph because you're in New York City. I would, I'd love. I would love to. Yeah. 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 So, thank you so much for sharing your story. Really looking forward to what you do, and just really appreciate just how you're advocating for people without college degrees because yeah, they no, deserve thank, a chance. Thank you for having me on. I really, this was a great discussion. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and we'll go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com.